Hello, Amy. Hello, Vicky. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this edition of the Swim Out podcast, where we'll be talking all about record-breaking swimmers and their swims. 2023 has been a truly smashing year in the open water. Coming up, we have the little boy from Mumbai who explains why he started with one of the hardest swims of the Ocean 7. The very first slot we got was the North Channel, so we just took it. We took the chance. We talked to Sophie, who set a new record for the longest English Channel crossing and broke a promise to the previous record holder, Jackie. We actually met in the water and I'm pretty sure that I said to you, don't worry, I'm not going for your record. We meet Jasmine, who talked herself out of an easy swim. I originally was looking at doing just a coast to coast. I thought, hang on, I need a support boat, I need a crew, I'm going to need money, I'm going to need to train for this. If I've got time, why would I just stop there? Amy hangs out with Andy Donaldson, who swam from record to record, but there were some tough moments. There were plenty of moments out there in the water where I just thought, I I don't know how I'm going to manage another five minutes, never mind another five hours. Quick reminder to you all to give us some likes and feedback, please, on your podcast provider apps. Good ratings give the podcast a higher profile and help more people to find us. Amy, it's lovely to have you back on Swim Out. To start our exploration of the record breakers, who better to talk to than Julian Critchlow, the keeper of all the English Channel swimming records? Amy and I hopped on a call with him to delve into the details of the records and the lunacy of it all. Welcome to Swim Out, Julian. What made you start to compile this amazing treasure trove of data? Back in 2004, there were probably around seven, 800 people who had done the English Channel at that point. And I embarked upon the English Channel just as a kind of a whim of fancy at the time. I was taking a, a leave of absence and I just decided I wanted to do something for fitness and ended up training and then doing the English Channel. And whilst you're going round and round the harbour of training, you kind of think about the, the experience, think about other people who have done it. And the only person you can probably name at the time is Matthew Webb. And then you, you get to the point where you've actually walked up the shore in France and then you get home and you're elated by that and you, you see friends. The first question often people ask is, well, how many people have swum the English Channel? It became a long database process of trying to work through all the different records, checking all the newspaper reports, bringing in all of the uh, records so that I'd have a single list. And then the intensity of the problem got even worse because the same person would swim the channel, but using different names. And so deduplicating the data was a, a long period. So it took me probably five or 10 years just to actually get all the data clean and such that the numbers weren't moving around. And after five or 10 years, I could answer it and say I was the 738th person to swim the English Channel. People then began to ask me, well, what number am I? And so I began to answer the people's. And then to do that, I had to keep maintaining the record. And then people began to say, well, am I the oldest or am I the youngest or am I the fastest, slowest? And so the questions began to get more and more specific. And, and very early on, somebody asked me, as a joke, I think, they asked me if astrological signs had any influence. And I actually did the piece of analysis, and I was obviously fairly sceptical, not being a huge astrology fan. But I found there was a very strong correlation between astrology signs and swimming the channel. Uh, so this was quite a shock to me. I subsequently figured out that if you have Alison Streeter doing 43 swims, Chloe doing 44 swims, and Kevin doing 34 swims, 
and Mike Reed doing 33 swims, their astrology sign might skew the data. And so that was my first example of just finding that the, the database was a very powerful tool, but you had to be very careful how you used it. I mean, I've cleaned up a lot of the data. I've tried to go through, get collect everybody's age so that we can do accurate age projections. And more importantly, be able to try and look at some of the very specific myths and inverted commas facts, which people quote, having done a swim, everybody's an expert. And when you look at many of them using the facts, the broad 3000 swimmers, you find a lot of them are complete myths. What's your favourite example of a debunked myth that the clean data has kind of helped to turn over? People always talk about the neat versus the spring type. Early days, there was a lot of bias in the data because the pilots would be fishermen and wouldn't necessarily want to go out on particular tides. And people got the view that a neat tide where the tidal flow is smaller is going to be easier to swim because you know where you're going to end up. Therefore, you won't get, you won't come off course and end up down in Calais. You can hit Cap Grenet. And so the, the kind of myth came into being that neats were easier to swim. In reality, more swims are done on springs now than neats. The success rates are very similar. What I've been told by pilots, whether it's again true, is although springs are much bigger in terms of the tidal flows, the flows are slightly more predictable. That's fascinating. Do you see the very straight line tracks of you know the fastest records? And people tend to assume that that must mean They've swum on a neat. For the very fast swims, the Andreas and um, Trent before him were doing, you know, six hours 45 and six hours 55 across. So that's within one tidal. So they're, they're basically not, you're not seeing the influence because they are so fast. The main challenge from the point of view of the prediction of a time is whether or not you can hit Cap Grenet because that is shorter than any other place along the coast. So in the most recent example, Andreas swimming from Dover to Cat Grenade did 21 miles. Sophie Everidge, who did the longest swim, ended up in Calais, which is about 28 miles. So it's actually, even as the crow flies, ignoring the big sweep of the, the, uh, the channel, it is actually further to swim to Calais than it is to swim to Cat Grenade. How have those big records, you know, the, the fastest, the longest, the oldest, the um, multiple swims, how have those changed over the time that you've been tracking the English Channel records? If you take the period between Matthew Webb swimming in 1875 and then the next swimmer swimming in 1911, that's a very long period when nobody else did it. So in a sense, Matthew Webb held a, very, a record for a very long period of time because everybody else who was attempting it failed. And there were lots of people attempting it. And indeed, Thomas Burgess, who did the, the next swim, did it 17 times before he managed to succeed. So Matthew Webb, although he only took two attempts, he succeeded on his second attempt, actually made it look uh, much easier than it really was. And then as people got more and more experienced about the training required and the preparation required, and obviously more recently with tools like you know the mapping and the GPS you see the success rate come up and up and up. So therefore, you've seen a, a big change in the records over the time. But some of the, you know, the facts about how long a record has been held is, you know, it's a bit skewed by the fact there were less people swimming then. But just on the record of multiple crossings, obviously now Chloe McArdle holds it at 44, just ahead of Alison at 43, um, Alison Streeter, and then the male record being Kevin Murphy at 34 and Mike Reed at 
1933. A lot of what spurred on that kind of record has been the personal competition and comradeship in the, in the swimmers. But the great thing about channel swimming is you can have this variety of records. It can be anything from Sophie's and um, before that Jackie Cable's record for the longest swim to the fastest with Trent and with Andreas, to Otto Fanning, who did the, the swim of the oldest, to Howard James, who did in one season, did the earliest swim and the latest swim. All of these are exceptional swims and all can be celebrated. To be honest, any swim that ends successfully is a, is a huge achievement. What are your favourite records you've seen broken? What I loved about the um, both this year, having the, the fastest and uh, longest broken in the same year, is it's lovely to see two people in the same effectively competitive arena competing against the weather, the cold, the uh, the stamina, but setting such very different uh, records. I have a lovely photographs of Trent and Jackie before who you know met up on the beach, again having set that record previously for the fastest and, and slowest. And it's one of the unique sports where everybody is really combined and wants everybody else to succeed. Now, one of the more interesting records I find is that most of the records in channel swimming are held now by women. Women's success rate is slightly higher than men, which is, again, an interesting uh, fact, and you can speculate on why that might be. But to me, the most interesting fact is that only half as many women try it. Although many of the records are held and they're more successful, the uh, men tend to try it at about twice the rate of women and therefore have twice as many successes because they're roughly the same success rate. Yeah, I was really surprised by that. I, I, I picked that up. It feels like the whole sport is dominated mm. by women, actually. And yet, actually, there are more male swimmers. I think probably the explanation is that it is such a huge commitment. And, you know, whatever the circumstances, maybe, maybe it's easier with support mechanisms for, for more men to attempt it. But you're right. I mean, in, in general, the women who are able to devote the, the time, you know, are very, very successful at this and hold most of the record. And again, the, the record that was most recently broken by Sarah Thomas doing something which everybody said was impossible, doing the four-way swim. And the times that uh, Sarah did in the first three crossings were just unbelievable. Each of those was a brilliant swim. Very accurate, very fast, very... And to turn around and do it a fourth time is, uh, you know, is staggering. Do you hold a record, Julian? Um, I hold the record of the first person called Julian. To do it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you narrow it down to enough criteria, you will always be a record holder. If you want to have a look through the data, I would highly recommend it. You can find it all at coldwaterswimming.wordpress.com. So I thought that I might hold the record as the only Vicky spelt the way I spell it to have swum the English Channel. But now I find another Vicky actually swam it in 1989 and she did it butterfly. So I really can't claim that one. But Amy, have you grabbed yourself a proper record this summer? Yes, I did. I grabbed myself two course records with my swim of Lake Geneva this summer. So I'm now the youngest soloist to do the 69 kilometres of the full length and the fastest Britain, both male and female. Wow, that, that's impressive. The f fastest English person. Nice. Was it a fun swim? It really was. It was a huge challenge, but it was just the most 
beautiful surroundings. So it was, even when it was really challenging, even when it was really tough, being in the lake, surrounded by all the mountains, and we had the peak of the Perseids meteor shower overnight. So even when it was dark and cold, you know, 3 or 4 a.m., we could see shooting stars going across the sky the entire night. It was amazing. That sounds very special, yes. Any plans for your next challenge? I haven't really set a next challenge yet, actually. I like to give myself a little bit of decompression time after my big swims. And I've found over the years that the bigger the swim, the longer the decompression and recovery time. So I'm still in that phase at the moment. But hopefully some plans for next year will be coming soon. So watch this space. And Shuman Jingran from India, who likes to be known as the little boy from Mumbai, is the youngest male swimmer to cross the North Channel from Ireland to Scotland. He followed that up with the Catalina Channel, where he bagged the record as the fastest ever Asian. He trained with Sal Minty Gravit in Jersey and has burst onto the open water scene, going for the Ocean 7 Challenge with style. He completed the North Channel on July the 17th this year at the age of 18 years and 125 days and is now a delighted double record holder. On Schumann, hello and welcome to Swim Out. Hello, ma'am. Thank you for having me here. That is quite a swim to have done. Did you enjoy it? I did enjoy it. It was a fun swim for me. My first swim out of the seven oceans. When I completed it, I was shocked within myself how did i do it you know you started with one of the hardest swims <laughs> we did not get slots for any of the swims and the very first slot we got was the north channel so we just took it we took the chance and you actually held the record for the youngest ever north channel swimmer for just under two months how does it feel to be in the guinness book of records uh, it feels amazing. If you would have asked this to me uh, five, six years ago, I would have told myself that I'm crazy, that I'm, I'm probably not going to get this. And But here I am today. So how did you prepare for such a, such a difficult and cold swim from your very hot hometown? Before last year, I did not even know what the Ocean 7 Challenge was. But luckily, my coach, he introduced me to the Ocean 7. So in the last four months, I used to take ice baths back at home every day. And I would just sit in it for two hours straight to get used to it. Every Saturday, I would used to swim 12 hours altogether. I would start 6 in the morning. I would end it at 6 in the evening. 25 meter pool, taking turns and turns and turns. <laughs> During our summer, so the temperature outside was around 38 to 40 degrees Celsius. So that was brutal for me. <laughs> then once I went to Jersey Channel Islands, I was training under Sally Mann. Yeah, Sally, yeah. Sally Minty. She, she's amazing. She, when I was with mom, I actually swam around Jersey, which was my first swim outside India. Sally Mann was with me throughout everybody I met actually helped me to get a bit better on myself. So talking about your preparation, in 2021, you did some challenge doing 206 kilometres in a, in a month. Tell us uh, about that. Uh, yes, I did. So 
2020, I actually had an accident. I fell off my cycle. I broke two bones. I had to go under surgery and all. A year later, I still couldn't recover from my hand. I still wasn't the old Anshuman I used to be. So before lockdown, I was actually a competitive swimmer and I was good at it. I've competed in Singapore. That was my best performance, fourth in the 1500 free. After lockdown, I started to face challenges like my hand. I couldn't get back my speed. So my coach came up with a solution. Let's try open water. And I was like, hey, okay. That time I did not know what I was signing up for. And I was like, 10 kilometer open water races. Okay, sounds fun. The first swim I swam, I was so happy starting. Oh, wow, I'm doing it, doing it, doing it. And then at one point I was like, why is this not ending? Then towards the end, one to two hours, I actually got stung by a jellyfish. My first thing in my whole entire life, I started crying my eyes out. I was like, what is this? This kind of pain I did not expect. During those seven swims, 206 kilometers, I actually learned a lot about open water. Those seven swims, I understood what what are the challenges, what all I have to go through just to be someone. And I was like, okay, I'm ready to take this path. Did you also do a swim, the Park Strait? Yes, ma'am. So that swim was from Sri Lanka to India. The interesting part of the swim is as soon as I got in the water, I was like, this is so warm. <laughs> me, for me, it was warm, interestingly. So what are your plans now? Ah, the plans. The first things first, complete the Ocean 7. So we, I do know that we have a swim in April, the Molokai Channel. Uh-huh. Exciting. And uh, we are trying for the Cook Strait in New Zealand. Hopefully, it will be next year, early next year. Uh, we are still trying to get the dates for the English Channel because the English Channel is so f- booked. It's kind of like full for the whole year and it's hard to get in. What is it about the open water swimming that you love so much? Number one, you can eat whatever you want <laughs> just to gain weight. <laughs> So that I don't get hypothermia in the water. So I have an excuse to eat whatever I want. I'm with you on that one for sure. (laughs) All swimmers are. Come on, swimmers. (laughs) Then number two is, of course, the challenge. The mental aspect, the physical aspect. I'm doing this because I know a lot of people in the world haven't done it. And I want to show people that things are possible just because... Only a few people in the world have done it. Doesn't mean they can't do it. Very good luck with your challenge. I wish you well. Thank you so much, ma'am. So we're focusing on record holders today. And last month, a long-standing and massive record was broken by Sophie Etheridge, who completed the English Channel in a time of 29 hours and four minutes. Now, Sophie has complex regional pain syndrome, which brings extra challenges for her. She was a swimming teacher before she had the cycling accident that brought on her condition and has since become an open water swimming coach. 
Sophie is also a passionate activist campaigning for better conditions for swimmers like her. And she runs the Facebook group ADAUS for adaptive and disabled open water swimmers with more than a thousand users. And you write for Outdoor Swimming Magazine. How do you fit it all in, Sophie? (laughs) Also with us on the call is Jackie Cobell, the previous holder of the record. Uh, I think with this third appearance, Jackie, you're our most interviewed guest on Swim Out. So you've been swimming royalty for some time and declared an honour swimmer in the 2020 in the Ice Swimming Hall of Fame. Your list of incredible and iconic swims is too long to read out here, but you've previously held the English Channel longest swim record in a time of 28 hours and 44 minutes, which you set in 2010. Jackie and Sophie, welcome to Swim Out. Thanks, Sophie. It's so exciting to have you both here. So I wanted to start by asking Jackie just to tell us a bit about your epic swim and and why why it was such a long swim. I think I went out on a spring tide. I mean, I knew I was slow. You know, watching Sophie's tracking as well, it brought back so many memories, emotional memories. I got in the right sort of right frame of mind. I didn't think about the swim. I mean, pains went, you know, and they came back. But no, it was really long. And how does it feel to you to relinquish the record? I watched Sophie's tracking half the night and I was sort of really willing her on, you know, because I knew what perhaps people were seeing in my track as well. And I got a little bit nervous when Sophie was around the Calais area. You know, I was like, oh, come on, come on. It's very interesting to see the two tracks next to each other because they are so similar. Yeah, I mean, Sophie's track's more loopier than mine. <laughs> So they thought just... I was going to Belgium at one point. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, did you go out on a spring tide? Yeah, but I didn't oh. realise it was going to be quite that large. <laughs> so how did your swim go then, Sophie? It took a long time. It was challenging. I was aiming for a maximum of 20 hours, hmm. but I was expecting to do it in more like 18. And it went on and on and on and on and on. But it wasn't until it started getting dark again. So I started at night, just after midnight. So I, and I was expecting to finish sort of early evening that mm. day. And it wasn't until I noticed the sun was starting to go down that I thought, hmm, this is taking longer than it should. So that was the first time I asked how many hours I'd been in the water for. I've been really putting it off the whole way through. And they were like, you sure you want to know? Because they're always a bit unsure if they're going to tell you or not. And they didn't. They said, you've been in for 20 hours and you've probably got about another seven or eight to go. So you weren't expecting to break this record then? No. So I did a week down in Cornwall with Loretta Cox. I bumped into you. Yeah, we actually met in the water. And I'm pretty sure that I said to you, don't worry, I'm not going for your record. (laughs) And it wasn't until they said, oh, you might get a world record. And I went, oh, God, really? I've had people messaging me, oh, your record's been broken. I said, well, I didn't actually set out to break a record, you know? No, I keep saying that. And people were saying to me, are you going to break, are you going to go out there and break your record again? I said, no. I saw your photos afterwards and I thought you looked really, really, I looked a right state, but you looked really well. 
my my only issue that I had was my lips and my face were swollen. It was about three days before I could eat properly, and I lost all my taste buds. Yeah, same um, as me. And the yeah. tongue. I have was your tongue. Mine all just slavered off. It was it was weird because the back of it, I couldn't taste anything, but the tip of my tongue, I could taste stuff. Mm. So I sort of tasted what I was eating, but then it almost vanished. It was really bizarre. But my mum's response when she saw my lips was that I looked like I'd had six rounds of Botox and all of them had gone wrong. I put on nine pounds after my swim, which is ridiculous. But obviously, I think I was absolutely bloated with water. Did you put any weight on? Was you all bloated? My stomach was fine. It was a bit upset, but not really enough for it to be an issue. I mean, even my shoulders weren't particularly painful. Oddly, about I think it was about three hours in, four hours in, my shoulder, my left shoulder started hurting, and it hurt for probably about three or four hours, I think. Yeah. And it was getting to the point where I couldn't do the recovery of my stroke, but all of a sudden it crunched and clicked, and then I was absolutely fine. And um, I mean, my shoulders weren't sore; I could lift my arms up completely the day after. That that must be a testament to your training, then, really. Yeah, it was just it was literally just my lips and my mouth and fatigue. I really struggled with the fatigue. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's taken best part of three weeks to get over the fatigue of it. I was so fatigued afterwards. We went away to um, Windermere after about five days, and I was walking along, and I just wanted wow. flat on my face. I was that tired. My pain was really bad in my legs and I couldn't walk anywhere. That was one of my issues. So I can normally walk short distances with crutches, but I just couldn't put any weight through my feet. It was just too painful. My legs get very hypersensitive. So once we got into French waters, it got quite choppy and there were some quite big swells and my legs were being thrown all over the place. And I actually ended up swimming with... Basically, my ankles crossed, so my right leg was supporting my left leg so it couldn't go all over the place. The only real disadvantage I think I had was when feeding. Hmm. So because I can't really tread water very well, when it got choppier and the current was stronger, it made it very difficult because I was ending up behind the boat. I'd rather have not fed. I know I know you have to feed, but yeah. when uh, Tanya called me in for a feed, I'm oh, not another feed, and I'd feed and then bring it all up again, you know. But I didn't have any solids. Did you have solids? I did at first, but apparently at hour 16, I refused them. They gave me some chocolate, and I'm trying to eat it, and it just... I spat it out in the end. Mm. To be honest, when I look back, and you probably feel the same in the cupboard, how the bloody hell did I do that? But you do, you do do it. I mean, I have no idea. Everyone keeps asking me, how did you swim for 29 hours and four minutes? And I go, to be honest, I have no idea. The the pains that I had, they come and went, you know. So I knew that if I had a pain in my back, I knew that it would last an hour or so and go away and then another pain will come in. So, you know, with your sort of condition, you must have been in pain all the time. I was in pain the whole time from my legs, but it's mentally overcoming that kind of pain. I know that pain isn't causing an injury. It's Mm. not causing lasting damage. Mm. It's just pain. So, Jackie... What's been the best thing about holding the record, would you say? Well, I mean, after the record, um, 
I felt a bit fat actually, and I thought, well, do you know what? I I didn't get that cold, and I've heard about this like cold water swimming. So yeah, I went off to Latvia, and I really enjoyed it, and I got like first place, and then. It will open up a lot of yeah. opportunities for you, for your charity, getting the message out there for disabled swimmers, you know, and being so inspirational. So lots of things, you know, really positive things will happen to you now. And and to be called an athlete. I thought, what? I called an athlete? I've had a great time, absolutely great time. But have you got any other swims in the pipeline? So I was looking at the original Triple Crown, which is obviously English Bristol North. Yeah. But someone said I should just do the Triple Crown, which is the English Catalina and Manhattan. Oh, yeah, yeah, fantastic. And said that I'd really enjoy, especially the Manhattan one. So I just got one last question really for you, Sophie. What what tips would you give to other adaptive swimmers who want to do long-distance swimming? Go and do it. You have to think a bit outside the box sometimes. So for me, with swimming in the sea, there was like the crossing my legs to make sure that one wasn't thrown over the other place. So it might be that you need some sort of adaptive equipment, but that's okay, and it's okay to remember that that's okay. There's still a lot of sort of stereotype around disabled people and disability being a negative and a bad thing. And I think once you've got over that and actually you realise the disability isn't what you are, you're not that disability, you're you. And if you want to do that, then go and do it. Sophie ending that discussion with Jackie Cabell about the longest English channel record. You can find out more about Adaptive Open Water Swimmers, Sophie's Facebook page, if you check the links on the website at swimout.net, where there are also longer versions of this and the other interviews. What's your favourite swimming record this year, Amy? I loved tracking Mathieu Bond's uh, recent longest non-stop ocean swim. It took him 60 hours and 55 minutes and he covered 131 kilometres. It was absolutely incredible to watch. What about you, Vicky? I liked it that two previous guests got records this year. John T. Warnerkin got the record as the first amputee to swim the North Channel and Jill Castle with her stoma swim. Oh, absolutely. Jill became the first person to swim the English Channel with a permanent ostomy. I'm so proud of her. I, another one that I loved tracking uh, was Lewis Pugh with his epic multi-stage swim down the Hudson. It took him over a month, 32 days, and he covered 315 miles to highlight uh, poor water quality and the critical role that rivers play uh, in a habitable planet. Another record that caught my eye was an, an Egyptian man called Shihad Alam, who swam seven miles in handcuffs. It took him six hours, but I'm not quite understanding in How handcuffs yeah crikey seven miles in <laughs> handcuffs gosh well on to our next guest jasmine harrison is a 24 year old adventure and swimmer from thirsk in north yorkshire she holds a number of world records in both ocean rowing and ultra endurance swimming welcome jasmine and thank you so much for coming on the podcast 
Tell us a little bit about your records. So in 2020, I became the youngest female to solo row across any ocean. I did the Atlantic from Ligamera to Antigua. And then in 2022, I become the first female to swim the full length of the country from Land's End to John O'Groats. Guinness has just ratified it. And the first isn't a record. It's put it as fastest brackets female. So I think I need to to start saying that now. It's the fastest (laughs) female, even though I'm the only one. So both of those were very long records, you know, we're, we're talking months. What drives you towards those weeks and months long adventures? So probably quite ironically, it's because I think I'm just really lazy. I know the amount of effort you have to go to, to do any event, whether it's like, if it's two hours, you still need to train a lot. You'll still need to build up the support chances are you'll still need to get sponsors for it and the amount of effort that goes into something which is only going to last 12 hours and so I'm thinking I can't be bothered to put that much effort in if it's only going to last that long I'm going to do all of that and see how far I can really go with it so that was my idea especially with the swim I originally was looking at doing just a coast to coast and I thought hang on I need a support boat I need a crew I'm going to need money I'm going to need to train for this if I've got time, why would I just stop there? You know what, let's not do a coast to coast, let's do a one end to the other. So the first record you did, you went across the Atlantic Ocean solo. What lessons did you take from that that helped you in preparing and helped you to complete your Land's End to John O'Groats swim? Um, I sort of just went with that if I can row across the Atlantic, then surely everything else in life will be easy especially something that I know so I'd never rowed before whereas I've been a swimmer my entire life and so I thought yeah if I can do that having been a novice I'm pretty sure that it gives me the confidence and I think believing in yourself is the biggest thing and the biggest tool that you actually need to achieve anything it's only 900 miles compared to 3000 and it's something that you know And in terms of kind of preparing all of the admin and the support around the record, which which was the higher burden there, the row or the swim? I would have definitely said the row to begin with, just because I needed everything to be organised well before I set off. And there was actual rules because it was a race. I had to adhere to lots of rules about it. Whereas swim, actually most of the admin was done along the way sort of the day before going, ah, I need a crew member tomorrow. Let me just do a post on the local Facebook group and see if I can just get a person. A lot of the admin for the swim was to do with the tides and to do with the location of where you are. And you don't know that until literally, until you've swam there. Maybe overall the swim was worse, but it's because it was so spread out. Which was the harder part of the Land's End John O'Groats swim? The organising of it or the... (laughs) <laughs> the 900 miles of swimming I'd have definitely said the organizing but I think because the organizing was so difficult it made the swim seem easier so much effort had gone in to just making it happen there is no way I could bottle out of jumping in the freezing water at 4am your next challenge that you've announced now is a round the world sale um so do you have your eye on 
a record hit. Yes, I'm going to sail around the world, but the boat is only 5.8 metres long. So in itself, that could be a record. I don't know. If you didn't have the limitation of tracking down those named records to help you get sponsors, to help you get the funding, what would be your ideal next challenge? As I was kayaking on Loch Ness, bringing the boat back last year, I decided that I wanted to kayak the Danube River. So I would love to do that the whole way through Europe. It would probably take about four months. So any other swims in the future or are you kind of you jumping sport to sport? Swimming's never over for me because that was just, that's who I am. Even though I need to convince myself I need to stop and start sailing more. Jasmine, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me tonight. If people want to follow uh, what you're up to, where can they find you on socials? Instagram, Facebook, they're the main ones that everybody uses, just Jasmine Harrison. Thank you for having me on. It's been lovely. Returning to the Ocean 7 Challenge, our final record breaker has been making the British news all year as he freestyled his way through these epic swims. Amy, over to you. Uh, so, Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, welcome very, welcome to the podcast. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and the record that you've just broken? Yeah, sure, Amy. So uh, I'm Andy Donaldson. I'm a swimmer from the west coast of Scotland. And in this last year, I have been trying to do a swimming challenge called the Ocean 7. Uh, it's a compilation of marathon swims around the world. And uh, my goal was to try to do all of these uh, within the space of a year, which is something that no one has ever done before. Yeah, and in the in the progress of setting that record, you also set uh, the shortest ever time for completing the Ocean Seven. Yeah, so I, I managed to come away with with three world records, which is uh, pretty mad to be honest. <laughs> uh, doing it within the space of a year, so three hundred fifty five days. The other one for the Ocean 7 was the if you were to add up all of the times of each of the swims, uh, that was a record too. And that was, I think, 63 hours and two minutes. Absolutely incredible. That's a serious feat of, of swimming. But first of all, so how was the record attempt dreamt up? What made you decide to, to go for this? It, it wasn't really something that was on my radar. Less than three years ago, I was actually, I was a retired swimmer. I had no thoughts of ever really doing much in the sport again. That was like a chapter that was closed. Uh, and really it was it was COVID that saw me get back into the water. Initially, it was just for a bit of fun to stay fit during lockdown. Uh, but the more I did it, the fitter I got. And, you know, I realized just how much I missed the sport. Doing a bit more of it, I, I started to challenge myself a bit more. Started entering a few local races where I live in Western Australia. After a while, I ended up trying i thought i'd try do a big local race there called the rottenest channel swim it's a 19.7 kilometer swim ended up winning the race and, and beating a few guys on the australian dolphins team in the process so it was a, a signal to me that you know i still had a bit in the tank uh, i was really enjoying my swimming and i'd raised about ten thousand dollars for mental health in the process and you know i i think for me it just that was really the beginning of things started doing some research into the English Channel. You know, growing up in the UK, that was always a dream of mine. Thought, well, how hard could it be? Why not, why not try <laughs> and give that a crack? And uh, stupidly 
committed to trying to do it in the space of a year, which uh, was probably a bit naive. But you know, I just I thought let's let's throw my hat in the ring and see let's just see how far I can go. So you had the plan for a year as a whole. Obviously, you've got to book some of these swims really far in advance. How did you? begin to train for your challenge did you train for one swim at a time did you train with the year as your goal yeah more the more the latter Amy so uh we didn't have everything booked in that was something I, I came to learn was was actually really tough but you know we had a good base to work off uh, my coach a man called Owen Carroll and uh, my strength coach Ryan Everenden We'd planned for this really high intensity year and back to back swims. And if we were lucky enough to get slots, great. If not, you know, it was, you know, nothing, nothing lost. We, we just tried. Yeah. The, the fitness was always there. It was the, the difficulty with the Ocean Seven is the, the different and the unique challenges that each of them present. The swims like the English Channel or the North Channel or Cook Strait are very, are notorious for being a bit cold. Uh, you've got other swims like, the one over in Hawaii, which you know has huge swells and uh, is a swim through the night, so like we had to prepare our body and and also just mentally prepare for for different challenges that each of these would bring along the way, and and that was something that I think you could prepare to an extent for, but some of the challenges, you know, nothing you could do in training could really replicate what you were about to experience. Um, it was stuff that you had to live through to really know how you would fare in those moments. What was the hardest part of all the seven swims? <laughs> uh, paying for it. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm joking. Well, mm-hmm. it, it, that certainly was a challenge. I mean, mm-hmm. there is a big, big financial commitment. So, you know, as an unfunded athlete go, going into that, it was, it was quite a daunting thing, but, we we took each swim one at a time and, and in bite-sized chunks because I think looking at the whole thing was quite a daunting prospect. So there was obviously a lot of physical challenges, like with most marathons, swimming the distance is one, swimming in the cold, you know, really tough conditions and swells, swimming at night, which can be really disorientating or, or isolating. But the toughest thing is is when things don't go to plan. Mm. You know, you can train for the distance, you can train for the cold, but you can't train for going out there and you get hit by a head-on current and you've made zero progress in the last two hours. But no one no one can prepare you for that. You know, when you're at bursting point, you've got nothing left to give and you're only a third of the way through. There were plenty of moments out there in the water where I just thought, I, ca- I can't do this. Like, I can't. I, I don't know how I'm going to manage another five minutes, never mind another five hours. And those are the tough bits. That's when you're really, your character is truly tested. And, you know, they talk about marathon swimming, being an, uh, a mental sport. And, and absolutely, I, I completely agree. That's when the mental tenacity and resilience really has to shine through if you want to get through those moments. You had some people on your crew that came to each of your swims. Did they, you know, how did they help you through those moments? None of this is possible on your own. You can't build a city as one person. Like you have to have a good team around you. And uh, I had members of my family. My mum and my dad were on my boats. My aunt and uncle, dad's partner, Jay Prashal, 
a fellow swimmer from Perth. He came to six of the seven swims and, and volunteered his time to come and do it. Crikey. I was just super lucky in that respect. Mm. And on the boat, everyone has their roles. You know, the skipper's doing the navigation. You have to trust their judgment. You've got the guys supporting on the boat, relaying messages in from all around the world, from friends and family. And it's amazing just how much those words of encouragement can really pick you up when you're really, really struggling. I think just knowing that someone has their eyes out on you, like especially in the night swims, and you're going through those tough times, Like I think just the comfort of having someone sitting in the mud with you is a great reminder that you're not tackling these challenges on your own. I know exactly what you mean, is when someone's watching you, even though you're the one swimming, it feels less lonely. So what was the most rewarding part of the year for you? I think when you come through those tough moments, that's obviously really rewarding. I think my first real moment of struggle was in the North Channel, where about three hours in, I got really cold and and did think I like I can't manage this and you know with the help of the team I I was able to finish it and and touch down on Scottish shores and that was really special because you've you've come through something where you've just five hours earlier thought it was impossible. The more along this cha- challenge that we've gone, I think it's it's started to pick up a bit more traction and people have seen not just what we're doing but the the reason why behind it. Um, you know to to raise money and awareness for mental health, to share the lessons that we've been learning along the way. And I, I use the word we because it is, it's, it's the team. It's just been so lovely to receive such lovely messages of encouragement and people sharing that what we've been doing has helped them in some small way. I think that's really rewarding. And obviously, like it's nice to have records and, and to post fast times, but I think stuff like that's a bit more valuable. And, and it's the people that you meet in the the friendships made that I think will be the things I remember most about this last year. It's, it's just been truly amazing. So the obvious question that you have to finish finish an interview with, have you got anything lined up next? Uh, I do. My my plans are to, to keep doing these swims and to continue supporting good causes. I've got a few in the pipeline. Some I can talk about, some I can't yet because they're not sure. quite there, but an area of interest for me is is the longer swims, the more expeditionary stuff as well. I, I feel that that's quite exciting. So kind of like what Jasmine's done. Stage swims, I yeah, guess. Yeah, the, the stage swims. I, I find that quite fascinating. And I'd love to do something like that where I could really use it to bring attention to something important. I mean, my dream would be to like swim around Scotland and see if you know the BBC would want to make a documentary and we go and visit all these little villages on the coastline and speak to the locals and, and share their stories. Kind of like a hairy bikers for swimming. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be amazing. I think it'd be really cool because what I've realised over the last year, like there's so many fascinating and incredibly interesting people out there and they've got amazing stories that deserve to be shared and and I think could help others. And so if I could be part of that or use my swimming in a way that might be able to get them out there, you know, that would be a huge honour and privilege. So that would be quite cool. Kind of paving the way for more rewarding things in future. So are you going to join me on that one then, Amy? <laughs> Swim around what? Scotland. <laughs> I tell you what, 
you do the coast i'll do the lakes there we go i am not here for jellyfish put me in a lock <laughs> and i'm absolutely fine that's fair yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me tonight, Andy. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Andy, for sharing your journey with us. And thank you to all of our guests today. All so awesome. Check out the website for long versions of these interviews and links. And keep in touch via our social media channels at Swim Out. See you next year when we have some great programmes lined up. Are we going to talk about training, Amy? Yes, I am so excited to delve deeper into all the different methods of training for swims like these. And do get in touch with us if you've got any other ideas for episodes in the next series. But that is it for now. Bye. Bye. Swim out and swim safe. Swim out.